Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and anybody else who loves the Old Testament. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Coming up in a few weeks, we have a giant sequoia of an episode for you. One of those massive, gorgeous redwood trees that I've always wanted to see um, and haven't yet, but will soon. Okay, wait. Sorry, I got distracted because we went to see them. <laughs> we, we were in California. We went to go see them, but we got lost. And so we ended up around these shrubs, and it was just so ironic because we were trying to find the redwoods, and all we could find were these tiny shrubs. Okay, sorry. Coming up for you in a few weeks, we have a giant sequoia of an episode with Dr. Johanna Boss. For now, we've got another mini episode for you, a kind of baobab tree episode for anybody here who knows and loves the Little Prince book. Uh, and Tim, you are leading that for us today on Amos 7. So what do you got? Yeah, so the lectionary text this week is Amos 7, starting in verse 7 and going through 17. A little uh, bit of context here. Uh, Amos in this book is presented as an 8th century Judahite prophet who was sent by God to the northern kingdom of Israel to condemn social injustices and improper worship there. This particular text is kind of interesting. Most of Amos is sort of collected prophecies, poetry, with just a little bit of prose to set them up here and there. But this section is kind of rare in Amos that in that it's a prose narrative with just a bit of poetic prophecy here and there. This means that rather than analyzing it for poetic structure and parallel terms, etc., we can read it as a narrative with attention to the plot, that is, to the raising of a problem and the story of how it gets resolved. So the problem is set up in verses 7 through 9. In the past, God had overlooked the crookedness of Israel, but now God is resolved to hold them to account. God will no longer pass them by, as it says. No more special favors. This message is given to Amos, an outsider to the kingdom of Israel, and he travels to Bethel and delivers the message. Uh, before we move ahead in the story, I should say something about the plumb line metaphor that's in the first couple verses there. As we read it, the story begins with God showing Amos a plumb line in God's hand. And for those of you who are not up on your architecture, a plumb line is a line with a, a string with a weight on the end that uses gravity to show true vertical. As you build a wall, the plumb line shows whether or not your wall is going up straight, whether it's off plumb and therefore structurally unsound. The idea here is that God is measuring Israel against a moral plumb and has found it out of alignment. While that's a powerful metaphor, the problem is that the word translated plumb line, anach, may not actually mean that. The, the word only shows up in the whole of the Bible in this text alone. So there have been various ways of translating it through the ages. The tradition of translating it as a plumb line goes back to Ibn Ezra in the Middle Ages and to Martin Luther after him. But recent comparative linguistic research suggests that this word is actually a word that means tin which wouldn't have been used for ancient plumb bobs, which were made of stone or lead. So while this image of a plumb line is possible, it's far from certain. And the scholars that I read on this issue seem to be shrugging their shoulders for now as to the meaning of God placing tin in the midst of the people. What we do know that God placed in the midst of Israel was Amos himself. And actually the repetition of the word bekerev 
may be a signal that Amos is indeed the piece of tin that God has put in the midst, Bekerev, Israel. And Amos's message causes a conflict in Israel because he speaks out against the religious and political establishment there. So moving ahead in the story, in verses 10 to 13, the priest at the sanctuary in Bethel sends word to King Jeroboam that Amos is stirring up trouble with his prophecies and needs to be silenced lest he foment resistance among the people in the land. He then confronts Amos by implication with the king's backing and forbids him to prophesy in the northern kingdom. This priest, Amaziah, Amaziah, basically pulls rank, calling Bethel a kingly sanctuary and a royal house, no place for a mere rogue prophet, much less an outsider, Judahite prophet. So Amos' response in verses 14 to 17 is the climax of this little plot. Amos says that Amaziah has misread the situation gravely. Amos is no itinerant prophet trying to make a buck by stirring up trouble. In fact, he's not a professional prophet at all and not a prophet's disciple. He's just a normal guy whom God snatched out of his normal life and compelled to give this message. Amos, who is only in Israel at God's direction, doesn't need to cower before the mere priest and mere king. The story ends with a new, more specific prophecy of doom against Amaziah and his family for having stood against the word of God's appointed messenger. So a couple of preaching pitfalls in this text. The first would be, uh, having talked a bit about the plumb line metaphor, I would encourage you preachers not to lean too heavily on that metaphor. Of course, it is part of the traditional reception of this passage, so that metaphor is hard to avoid. And in all honesty, no linguistics police are going to arrest you for using it as a powerful symbol. But I would suggest, out of respect to the author or authors of this text, that if you do use that metaphor, you ought to at least mention that it's one possible reading of this text among others. That would be sort of an honest approach. Now, another pitfall that's maybe more significant than that one, there's actually some pretty challenging prophetic rhetoric in this text, violent rhetoric, especially in those last verses, and especially against Amaziah's family, who've not committed any direct offense, at least uh, as we have it in this text. This is the kind of text that people point to who think that the God of the Old Testament is characteristically a God of judgment, doom, violence, and sort of like petty sin policing. So there are several ways to think about this. For one, this text comes from a much more collectivist society than ours, where the offense of a head of household had assumed consequences for the whole household. This doesn't excuse the vicarious violence, but it helps to recognize that it's more at home in their cultural context, a one that's very different from ours. Another sad fact is that the destruction that eventually did come upon Israel exhibited the kind of violence that Amos warned about here. So maybe he wasn't just being snarky and vengeful, but giving like a bleak assessment of actual consequences for those who disregard God's covenant and justice and what happens to their associates and their loved ones. Finally, in a context where most people already think that the God of the Old Testament is about judgment, violence, etc., It's well worth noting that here in Amos, God's decision to hold Israel accountable is not about petty punitiveness. 
God's anger comes out, as we see in the wider context of the book, because those with wealth and power in Israelite society were abusing the poor and needy among them. That's the kind of behavior that provokes God's anger. God takes the side of the vulnerable and the oppressed, and I think that's pretty significant. In any case, if you're preaching this text, you probably need to say something about the violence that's in it. It's not meant to be simply glossed over and accepted because it's in the Bible. Even in Amos's own day, this was meant to be shocking and disturbing. That's kind of the point. It's a prophetic wake-up call. So as far as a preaching angle, if I were preaching this text, I would focus my attention on the heart of the narrative plot, the confrontation between the powers that be in Israel and the prophet with no credential except the calling of God. To my reading, this is the classic biblical portrayal of speaking truth to power, of resisting the attempts of the powerful and unjust to shut down the voice of the uncredentialed. The authority to challenge unjust power doesn't come through professional training or wealth or personal charisma or from the inherited privilege that's bequeathed by powerful systems. The authority to speak out for what's right comes from the call of God alone. And that preaches so well because Amos can be a model for the social justice advocates in your congregation on up to the middle school kid who sees somebody being bullied. Amos can speak to all of us when we need courage to take a stand on behalf of the weak who are being hurt. God's call is really all we need to get going. So that's where I would take this one. Mm, That sounds awesome. Thanks, Preacher. I can't wait to hear some great sermons on that, hopefully. (laughs) If you liked this episode today and found something helpful in it, send it along to your pastor friends. Bring it up at your tech studies or uh, share it on Facebook. That would be a great way for us to spread the word about this podcast. Yeah, and you can find all of that information on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. So that's probably good enough for now. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. Happy preaching.